Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you, as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Jonathan McClatchy, who is a Christian writer, speaker, debater, and founder of Apologetics Academy, which is a ministry that aims through online webinars to equip people to defend the Christian faith and to help Christians who are wrestling with doubts. Jonathan McClatchy has a BSc in Forensic Biology and two master's degrees, one in Evolutionary Biology and the other in Medical and Molecular Bioscience, and he is currently a PhD candidate in Cell Biology. Whatever that might be, I hope to ask about that in a minute. Um, and he is a contributor to many well-known apologetics websites. He's been interviewed on many podcasts and radio shows, including Unbelievable with Justin Burley on uh, Premier Christian Radio. And he has taken part in umpteen moderated debates. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, thanks for having me on, Julian. Well, it's uh, very good of you to agree, and it's good to be speaking with you now. I mean, I came across you via, I think it was a Facebook post linking to a particular presentation that you'd given called The Case for Intelligent Design, Jonathan McClatchy Presents to Teesside Skeptics in the Pub. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I found that very interesting, actually. I thought you were therefore going to be very well placed to answer some of the questions that I have about these sorts of intelligent design issues, which we'll, we'll get on to in a few minutes. Now, there are three things, really, that I want to pick your brains about today. Um, so our interview will essentially be about uh, apologetics in general in the current intellectual climate and uh, this thing called street epistemology, which uh, some atheists seem to be involved with. And uh, then thirdly, as I already said, the status of intelligent design as a scientific project, really, because we have looked at intelligent design, but not the sort of philosophical questions surrounding that so much. Um, but could we start with a little bit about your background? Have you always been a, a believer in God? Sure. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my father is an elder in the church I grew up in. Uh, so I've had a Christian upbringing uh, since my early days. Uh, I became a Christian about uh, 21 or so years ago um, in 1996. Uh, been a believer since, and through my university years uh, as an undergraduate student, I became interested in particular in the area of intelligent design as I began to study in detail the molecular workings of the cell and engineering prowess of macromolecular machines and information storage processing and retrieval apparatus that we find governs the show in biology, uh, and also became interested in apologetics through my um, interaction with people of different worldview persuasions, atheists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. Uh, so that's um, kind of in a nutshell my background. Mm. Were you influenced at all by the work of Michael Behe in that? Yes, um, I've met Michael Behe several times and uh, I've read both of his books. Um, and uh, yes, he's been uh, an influence on my thinking. Mm. And so you do this thing called cell biology. Um, go on, tell us, give us some idea of what that's about. <laughs> Right. My particular area of, of study is mitosis, uh, which is in cell division in eukaryotes. Uh, eukaryotes, uh, for those of your audience who are not biologists, is um, cells, <laughs> cells with uh, nuclei. So we are eukaryotes as opposed to, say, bacteria and archaea, right? There are three domains of life. There's bacteria and archaea. Bacteria and archaea collectively are the prokaryotes. And then the rest of life are eukaryotes, um, which are nucleated cells. Um, so I study the mode of cell division in eukaryotes. Wow, I think that, that's suitably obscure for somebody doing a PhD. Um, now, which university are you at, by the way? I'm at the University of Newcastle. Newcastle. Are you open about your interest in intelligent design in your department by any chance? 
Uh, no, it doesn't really come up. Doesn't really come up. Okay. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about um, Apologetics Academy, how that works, because uh, you run these webinars. Uh, what, what goes on with those? Um, so I run a weekly online apologetics webinar every Saturday evening uh, called the Apologetics Academy. The website is apologetics-academy.org. And the idea is that every Saturday um, I bring on different scholar, apologist, thinker, uh, researcher from across the theological spectrum. So it could be a Christian or uh, an atheist or agnostic or a Muslim or even a Mormon. And um, I have them present for up to an hour on a topic of interest to Christians, particularly on those topics which pertain to the question of whether or not Christianity is true. And we also cross-examine and evaluate um, other worldviews as well. And basically, after they're presented, then we open up to open floor Q&A, discussion, dialogue, and debate. So anyone anywhere in the world can, from the comfort of their own living room, interact with a leading scholar in their respective field. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've had on some of the leading Christian thinkers as well, some of the leading atheist thinkers, and uh, some Muslim thinkers as well. Yeah. So that, that's the basic uh, premise mm -hmm. of Apologetics Academy. Wow. And so anybody can sign up to be involved with that, can they? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So if you go to apologetics-academy.org and click on online apologetics training, you can find the upcoming schedule of uh, upcoming webinars. And uh, this Saturday, we're having a discussion of Mormonism with uh, Lynn Wilder and Corey oh, yes. Miller, who are ex-Mormons, um, who've recently uh, come out with a new book on out of Mormonism. Yes, I'm sure I've heard of both of those, actually. Yes, fascinating stuff. Um, okay, well, we'll come back to perhaps just one or two things about that at the end to remind people of where you are and how they can get in contact with you and perhaps help them in various ways, because you do, in fact, I understand, even help people individually. Is that right? That's right. So I have a service on my website where people can submit a form um, if they are wrestling with intellectual doubts about the faith. And uh, I will set up a meeting with them, usually online, unless they are reasonably close um, in close proximity geographically, um, and uh, talk about their doubts with them and uh, talk about whether the reasons that they have for being skeptical are, are reasonable or not. Good. Okay, as I say, we'll come back to that at the end. Um, let's discuss then a bit more about this area of Christian apologetics in general, why you think that's important. Now, the, the first thing that I always feel is necessary to say about this, and I think you probably know what's coming, um, is that it does not mean to apologize about anything, because it does sound like that. Um, it means something more like giving a reasoned defense for what you believe to be true, in this case, Christianity. And as listeners will know, we have an apologetic series going on here at The Mind Renewed. It's been going on for a few few years now, which we've been exploring various aspects of Christian belief through reasoned conversation with various guests, and of course, including yourself now. Um, but of course, there's a lot more to it than just saying, giving a reasoned defense. Uh, why? To whom? What kind of defense? How would you articulate that defense? So, I mean, how would you define yourself what Christian apologetics is? Right. Apologetics is the discipline of um, defending the faith. As you mentioned, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a reasoned defense. It's a legal term. We find it in 1 Peter 3.15 mm. in Scripture, which says that in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be ready to give an answer or to give a defense, to give an apology to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that lies within you, but doing so with gentleness and respect. And so we see throughout the New Testament um, various apologists. We see in the book of Acts, we see Paul um, debating the Jews in the synagogues. We see um, Apollos doing likewise. We see Peter also. We see... Um, various contenders for the faith, even Jesus, um, you know, John the Baptist in Matthew 11 sends uh, 
disciples to Jesus to ask him whether he's the one they're expecting or whether they should be waiting for another. And then what does he do? He goes to provide evidence for him being the Messiah, citing from Isaiah 35 and citing from Malachi 3. Um, and so apologetics uh, seeks to defend the faith against objections and expose flaws in other worldviews and importantly provide robust evidence and intellectual grounds and rationale for believing Christianity to be objectively true. Hmm. Yes, you, you said about challenging other worldviews there. Do you see a precedent for that in what Paul writes in Second Corinthians, where he says in chapter 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ? Do you see that he was doing that sort of thing there? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we see him himself doing that in Acts 17, for example, when he's in Athens and he's dialoguing with the Greeks there. Um, we see him doing that in the synagogues with the Jewish rabbis. Uh, I mean, it says in Second Corinthians 10, as you mentioned, that uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so um, often when we talk about demolishing or destroying people's arguments, people think, you know, that's not a very Christian thing to do, is it? But in fact, that's, that's <laughs> yes. something that, uh, in fact, Scripture commands us to do. It's something that Paul writes in his letter that we should be practicing. We should be removing stumbling blocks from people's way that prevent them from coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, I mean, Paul was, in his own day, a trained academic. Uh, do you think basically it's the academics that we should be doing this, or should everybody be involved? Really, everybody should be involved in apologetics. You know, apologetics isn't something that uh, we might merely like to do. It's not something that's just suggested in Scripture, but it's something which is in fact commanded in Scripture. Um, I already mentioned First Peter three fifteen, um, but there's other um, apologetics texts in Scripture. You've already mentioned Second Corinthians ten, also First um, Thessalonians five twenty one instructs us to test everything holds fast to the gate. Um, Proverbs fourteen verse fifteen says the, the simple man believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps, um, etc. So and we are commanded in Scripture to to think and to use reason and to be ready to give an intellectual defense for why we believe that Christianity is objectively true. And yet, uh, a lot of people will say, I think, uh, well, you know, it's all very well to be thinking as a Christian, but when it comes to matters of the faith, you know, doctrinal matters and that sort of thing, it is all about faith. It's not really about reason. If you're using reason too much, being too cerebral, perhaps, then it means you're not having a very faithful attitude towards the belief, you know, that sort of Christianity. What's your attitude to that? Well, this comes down to a misapprehension of what faith is. I mean, the word faith in the New Testament that's translated into our English word faith is pistis, which basically means trust, right? So faith isn't uh, an epistemology. It's not a way of coming to know that Christianity is true. Rather, it's a response to knowing that Christianity is true. So once we have established, based on the evidence, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is objectively true, then we become justified and rationally warranted in placing our faith or our commitment. I mean, the Latin word that's used in the Vulgate is fides, from which we get our English words confide and confidence, literally meaning with faith. And so that's really what the word means. I mean, there's a second century letter written by Theophilus of Antioch to a pagan by the name of Autolycus. And he writes to Autolycus and says, do you not know that faith is the leading principle in all matters? For what husbandman can reap unless he first entrusts the sea to the earth? Or who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts himself to the boat and the pilot, 
or who can be healed unless the person trusts himself to the care of the physician? If then the husbands must trust the earth and the sail of the boat and the sake of the physician, why then will you not place confidence in God when you hold so many pledges at his hand? And so that's clearly how the early church understood faith. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we kind of um, succumb to the atheist misapprehension of what faith is. Yes, indeed. I was just thinking of Richard Dawkins. He does have that attitude that uh, faith is an epistemological thing, isn't it? Then you know, he's, oh, it's all about blind faith. As you say, that is coming from a misapprehension. Yes, very interesting. Um, there are two different schools, are there not? Uh, main schools, anyway, of apologetics, the sort of evidential approach and the presuppositionalist approach. Do you use both in your own work? I think that there is room for – I mean, I am I would emphasize an evidentialist approach, but there is certainly room for presuppositional-style apologetics. So, uh, for example, the moral argument is a presuppositionalist-type argument, right? Um, I tend to focus and major on the evidentialist approach to apologetics. I think that it's uh, far more persuasive and far more convincing than a presuppositional approach. Okay. Um, they do tend to be sort of polarized, I've found, where people tend to go for one or the other, but it's uh, interesting that you would use certain aspects, perhaps at times, of each, even though you do concentrate on the evidentialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Um, just as a matter of interest, where you are based, is apologetics much of a feature of church life? Uh, no, not at, certainly at my church, but uh, I think it should be more. Yeah. It isn't around here. Yeah. It isn't around here either. Yeah. So how, how, how do we do this? I mean, how do we get people interested in the churches? Because I think it's very important, isn't it? Yes, tremendously so. And uh, when we don't have a robust intellectual foundation for our Christian faith, then it's not going to be too difficult for someone to talk us out of something that we've never been talked into in the first place. Right. Indeed, yes. So, uh, what, what's your what's your answer to that? I mean, how do we get people interested in the churches? Yeah, that's that's a million dollar question. It's very very <laughs> difficult. Um, to, I mean, I've I've been trying to work this out for a long time. Uh, I mean, certainly doing the sort of things that you're doing with apologetics podcasts and blogging and just trying to get the word out to more and more Christians and doing public talks on apologetics related themes. So I, I think all of these things, uh, but it's certainly it's it's not something that can be done, you know, in, in a weekend. It's something that's going to take no, no, a long no. time. Yeah, sure. And on your website, you say that uh, there's something about the way in which you do apologetics, which is different from the majority. Um, now I connect with that because although apologetics is involved with my own work here, it's not the only thing that's going on. I sort of embed apologetics within a, a broader cultural involvement, and that is, you know, that's part of the way I work. And I would I call that a kind of applied apologetics. Would you say that you are doing something, you know, an applied apologetics? See, the reason why I'm asking this is I often feel that when I visit various apologetics websites, they they seem rather ghettoized, as if it's a lot of people talking to themselves. And I wonder whether anybody outside Christianity actually ever bothers to to, to listen into the conversation. So do you see that you, you are doing a kind of applied apologetics in the sense that I mean? I guess so. I mean, I'm not 100% sure of how you're defining that, but I, I would... No, no, it's difficult to define. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is the, the philosophy that I operate with is the premise that if Christianity is true, which I believe it is, then it has nothing to fear from hearing the very best intellectual critiques of its core doctrines. And so that's that's my motivation behind inviting some of the best critics of the Christian faith to come on to my webinar. Um, I've had Dr. Stephen Law on, I've had Matt Dillahunty, I've had Aaron Ra, I've had Bob Price, I've had um, various, various other um, uh, critics of the faith. And the purpose is to allow people to see the best critiques of the Christian faith and also see that those arguments engaged with a high intellectual level. 
so I, I don't believe that we have anything to fear from hearing the very best critics because I'm, I'm confident Christianity is true based on my investigation of the evidence. Mm. And I should think the way you're approaching there does in fact invite a lot of people who don't believe to come and take part in what's happening at the webinars. Exactly. Yeah. Do you think the term apologetics itself is a bit of a problem? I mean, you've even got it there in your URL, because um, it does, not so much from the point of view that it sounds like an apology, but I'm thinking it's often considered to be a dirty word, isn't it? Oh, such and such is an apologist for this, or, you know, always oh, in a Mormon apologist who expect him to say such and such. Do you think we should perhaps move away from that term? Yeah, I mean, certainly in some circles it has negative connotations. Like if you talk to certain atheist scholars, they'll say, well, that's not scholarship, that's apologetics or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, which, I, which I think is uh, is a false dichotomy. I mean, in, I mean, yes, yes. Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, is an apologetic in a sense, right? It's an, it's an attempt to present a reasoned argument for a thesis. Mm. Um, and so any book on, on any scientific paradigm or any um, historical point of view which makes a reason defense for it is doing apologetics so yes. yeah oh well, i agree yes if you have a point of view and you defend it you are doing apologetics but my point is given that there is such a negative attitude towards it out there should we be sensitive to that and perhaps not use the word possibly that's an argument that i think could be had mm. yeah i mean it's the same some people um, would say the same thing of intelligent design though because it's become so uh, kind of radioactive that we should move on to different terminology <laughs> yeah. yes okay i won't ask you that about intelligent design then you've already said it um okay so related to this is the second thing i want to ask you about which is this um street epistemology business i don't know a lot about this at all um but i did see this interview that you had with uh, i think he was an atheist anyway and he was trying this street epistemology upon you um at least that's what the video claimed he was doing but to me it seemed like he was essentially asking you questions um is that all street epistemology is just asking questions well, street epistemology finds its roots in Peter Bogosian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. And basically, it's a technique that uh, many atheists have found useful for attempting to sow seeds of doubt to bring about deconversion or convert people from religious persuasion to atheism or something like that. But it's not only used in that sense. Uh, people often use it for uh, in conversations with people who believe in things like karma or alien abductions, or ghosts, or, what, or UFOs, whatever it happens to be. Mm. So it's, it's used for a variety of different things. But it's best known, I think, for its application to um, Christian claims, and or religious claims. Um, and there's nothing, find, nothing objectionable about it in principle, is there? In principle, but the way that it's employed... Uh, they, uh, Peter Bogosian and other uh, and his disciples like Anthony Magnabosco and Reed Nice Wonder and others, they will define faith as an epistemology. And so they'll ask people questions like, "Is faith a reliable way of coming to a conclusion that a belief is true?" Uh -huh. And of course, the correct answer to that is, "Well, no, because it's not it's not an epistemology at all, right?" As I said earlier, it's a response to to knowledge. And uh, they will say things like, "Okay, so." On a scale of zero to one hundred, this is the first question. The first question they normally ask after having established <laughs> yes. what belief, right? They'll ask. I think he asked you this. The one in the video, I think he asked you. Yeah. That, yeah. They'll ask uh, on a scale of zero to one hundred, how confident are you that this belief is true? Hmm. And really, one needs to seek some sort of calibration, right? As you probably saw, I did in the interview. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So I, I would like to calibrate it in terms of if we're dealing with, say, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, okay, some other historical claim, um, such as Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, for example. Um, and say, okay, so what percentage would you give for your confidence in that, right? Mm. Um, because 
I mean, I, I would say that I'm sure beyond reasonable doubt that Christianity is true, but you, you need some sort of calibration. And the next question, so then they'll often ask you, okay, so let's say let's say I give a percentage of, say, 98 or 99 percent, even though I don't like the sort of numerical scale. I prefer to just say I'm sure beyond reasonable doubt or something along those lines. But yes, yes. but they would they would then follow up the question, okay, so what's your main reason for you being so confident? And my response to that is, well, it's not just one piece of evidence, right? There's not just one golden bullet argument which then demonstrates that Christianity is true. No, it's a cumulative case. And this is where – this is another misapprehension that many atheists, in particular the street epistemology crowd, have because Christianity is not established by just one piece of evidence, but rather lots of different lines of evidence, lots of different strands of evidence which together converge on a conclusion. So hmm. – um, so people will typically bring up a particular reason and then they'll say, so if you didn't have that reason, how would that affect your confidence in the belief? And so basically what it's trying to do is peel back the onion to demonstrate that the reason for your confidence is not really the evidence at all, but rather um, just your faith. That, that's basically what they're trying to demonstrate. See, yes. And uh, my response to that is, well, okay, so take, for example, a proposition like the existence of Abraham Lincoln. What evidence would it – I mean if, you did, if we didn't have all the evidence for Abraham Lincoln existing, well, would you be so confident Abraham Lincoln existed? Well, if we didn't have any of the evidence we had, well, sure, but that would take a rather dramatic change in what evidence is available. So it's the same thing with Christianity. There's such a, The evidence would have to, have to be so radically different if the resurrection didn't happen that it's not really a hypothesis that we seriously entertain. So what would you say then that Christians should be really aware of the methods that these so-called street epistemologists are using, in a sense, what they're doing, you can't blame them for having a go, but we ought to be aware that it is a particular method and be able to respond to that method. Yeah, um, I think Christians should be equipped and trained on how to engage with street epistemologists. And uh, for your listeners, I direct them to my two interviews, which I've uploaded to my YouTube channel, one with Reed Nicewonder, who's a very popular street epistemologist, another one with Douglas Lutkeman, um, where he also attempts to do street epistemology on me. And the method I use in dealing with them really causes them not to get very far with that method at all. Um, because one, approaching an evidentialist argument using street epistemology just doesn't get you anywhere. And so it's called street epistemology, presumably, because people actually go out in the street with a clipboard and they have a list of questions and collar people out there on the street. Right. It's very sim- It's kind of the atheist equivalent of street evangelism. Indeed. Um, you say that, you said right at the beginning, that um, faith is not an epistemology in itself, but um, there's something of that in reformed epistemology, isn't there? I mean, Alvin Plantinga would argue um, that faith is or can be a form of knowledge. Do you have any truck with that? Faith can be a form of knowledge in what sense? Um, in the sense that um, presumably you are aware of Plantinga's mm-hmm. work in this yep. area. Okay. So um, that it seems to you, you find yourself believing in such and such, you know, that God exists and uh, yeah. therefore you can consider that one of your properly basic beliefs uh, along yeah, with, sure. other, with other properly I, basic beliefs and you could articulate that to your street epistemologist. And would they then say, ah, well, you see, that's a, a form of non-evidential faith. Would they then have a strategy for getting at you? Yeah, the properly basic belief argument is not really an apologetic I tend to emphasize because, um, I mean, the, the reason why I'm confident Christianity is true 
is because of the evidence. I mean, a Mormon could also argue that they have a properly basic belief. I mean, they do argue that they, well, they know it's true because they prayed and received a brewing in the bosom. Um, so I think that personal subjective ex- existential experience has to be calibrated and measured against the publicly available evidence. Yeah. So, yes, we can have personal subjective experiences, but it has to be consistent with the publicly available evidence. And I think Plantinga would agree with that. So, yeah. Yes, yes, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, indeed. Okay, yes, um, let's move on from that then to this question of intelligent design, which you have a lot of interest in, a lot of connection with. I believe you write for the main website of the Discovery Institute. Now, we have looked at this before with Dr. Michael Behe and Dr. Robert Marks. Obviously, with Michael Behe, we looked at the biological uh, irreducible complexity line in things and the, the inference to design from that. With Robert Marks, we looked at the information theoretical aspect to do with evolutionary algorithms and uh, all that sort of thing. But as I said before, we hadn't really looked at the philosophy of it quite so much. So I don't want to just jump straight into that. I would like you, first of all, if you could, to describe what you say intelligent design is, Mm -hmm. and then I will come back at you with some more philosophical questions about it. What is intelligent design? Sure. Well, one definition of intelligent design that we often hear promulgated by the media and press is that intelligent design is the idea that living systems are just too complex and improbable to be explained by the process of evolution and therefore require invocation of a supernatural being to explain their existence, such as God. But um, one of the problems with that definition is that it fundamentally sets intelligent design up as an argument from ignorance or regarded the gaps type argument. And so it's, it's not very convincing yeah. um, as an argument. Uh, it's basically, intelligent design is reduced to a placeholder for that of which we are ignorant. Whereas a better definition, I think, of intelligent design, and the one that I would um, advocate for, is the following. The intelligent design is the idea that we can infer from patterns in nature that some features of living systems are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than a stochastic process involving chance and necessity. So um, there you can see that um, I've set intelligent design up not as an argument based on what we don't know about the cause and effect structure of the world, but rather in contrast what we do know about the cause and effect structure of the world and the nature of biological systems, that there are certain hallmarks, certain features, certain patterns associated with biological systems which are best explained by intelligent design. So that's how I would define it. I see, yes. Uh, You said some examples. Would there be other examples of biological systems that don't show evidence of design? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there I mean, intelligent design isn't a theory of what's not designed, but what is designed. So you could have certain systems which just don't meet the criteria for being Hmm. um, for being designed. I mean, you could get from one thing to the other by just a chance um, event. Um, So yeah, that's what I would say. Hmm. So if one was to say that the designer was God, and of course, I'll ask the question as whether that's to be included within intelligent design theory or not, certainly that it's an inference that one can make personally that the designer is God. Um, If that's the case, then would it be that God had only designed part of the universe, just those things from which one could infer design? But I mean, the intelligent design explanatory filter, um, while it um, is fraught with false negatives, it hopefully avoids false positives. So you could have um, something which could, in principle, be the result of stochastic chance-based processes and mechanisms, but is in fact the product of design. But uh, So that's a false negative, and that's something which the explanatory filter of design detection um, has, has a problem with. But what comes out with the explanatory filter as being designed, uh, hopefully it excludes false positives. 
So um, it's not, as I said before, it's not a theory of what's not designed, but a theory of what is designed. So it's there are certain features which evidence design, and designers can hide their their tracks. So uh, I don't really see that as, as a potent objection. Okay, so if it makes this inference to design per se, it doesn't make necessarily an inference to a designer who we can say it is this is the designer or that is the designer. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, intelligent design it doesn't make any claims, uh, at least in its purest sense, about the identity or nature of the designing intelligence. Right. Now I accept that, but a lot of people will say, "Ah, but that's uh, that's just a ruse." In fact, <laughs> what is behind the the theorist's mind is God, and so it's they say creationism in a cheap tuxedo, or they say it's stealth creationism. How do you respond to that? I don't find that a, a, a very potent objection because. So I want to make a distinction. So I, I think that the designer is the god of the Bible. I've made no secret of that. I'm a Christian apologist, for crying out loud. So I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. However, I, I don't think the biological evidence on its own gets you to that conclusion. And so I would say that my conclusion that Christianity is true is not something which logically follows from the conclusion of intelligent design. Yeah. So that's a distinction I would make. I, I reached my conclusion that the Christ, uh, Christianity is true on completely independent grounds, independent of the thesis of intelligent design in biology. So somebody who believes that we're created by aliens would be just as justified in, in saying, oh, yes, I believe intelligent design and believe it's aliens that did it, as you would as a Christian theist to say you believe that God did it. I mean, I would push back on that and argue that the theistic design hypothesis is in fact a better candidate explanation than the extraterrestrial design hypothesis. Mm. Um, but that would certainly fall within the bounds of intelligent of an intelligent design theory, yes. So somebody could in fact believe the flying spaghetti monster had done it, and within intelligent design, that would be perfectly acceptable. Right. If they wanted to. Right, that wouldn't be a, a warranted conclusion from the scientific evidence. Uh, someone, <laughs> someone could believe that, and I would probably laugh at them and say, but what about all the evidence <laughs> yes. against So I, I think that I think that theistic design hypothesis is far more plausible and far more tractable than that. Yeah. Okay, so if you make an inference to design, you whatever it is, you're looking at some biological organism and you, you, you scan the literature and you, you've, you've looked through years and years and years, you find no no example of how that may have come about, and you, you see what you think is irreducible complexity, and uh, you reach point where you think, yes, okay, I believe this is designed. Is that a hard and fast conclusion at that point, or is that as provisional as the rest of science? Well, when we're talking about historical claims, we are using the historical deductive method of referring to the best explanation for multiple meaning hypotheses. So I would never use words like proof. It doesn't prove intelligent design, but rather intelligent design is the best explanation based on what we know so far about the cause and effect structure of the world, the types of phenomena that we find in biology and what types of causes are necessary to produce them. All right, so is it science? Now, what I mean by this is, does not science have to adhere to what is called methodological naturalism? And I mean that in a, you know, a hard sense that only natural causes can, in principle, be considered to be a cause of phenomena. Okay, so science, must it follow methodological naturalism? I would make a distinction between methodological naturalism and methodological materialism. And I would say that intelligent design is perfectly natural phenomena, which we have experience of. We have uniform repeated experience of intelligent agencies producing certain types of effect, namely complex specified information content. So um, I have no problem with making an inference when we find that type of phenomena in biology to the reality of a designing intelligence. Um, now, intelligence is not a material cause, 
but it is a natural cause. So um, right. I think that a design inference is warranted in this case. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So and, in, and, yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, I would even say that uh, you know, we, we infer to intelligent design in forensic science, which um, I have a degree in. We, have, we infer to intelligent design in, in the SETI program um, and archaeology and, and so on. So we don't know how matter interacts with mind. We don't know how mind interacts with matter. But we're nonetheless justified in inferring design as a cause, even if we don't fully understand how agency interacts with the material world. Okay, so in fact, ID is not at any point within the science of ID, if we're going to say it is a scientific program, it is never actually inferring to supernatural design. It is always just inferring to design. It stops at that point. It never crosses over into the supernatural. Right, right. Uh, Yeah, science is not equipped to test whether a supernatural reality exists, um, but it can infer certain things about uh, whether intelligent causes are necessary to produce the effect. And I think that whether that causes natural or supernatural is outside the purview of science can be addressed by philosophy and by other disciplines as well. Mm. Yes, because I was thinking about this. I read um, Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God. And of course, this is to do with Mm -hmm. historiography rather than the the natural sciences. But I noticed uh, something going on there similar to this and that he was ruling out of court that we should have an explanation of the resurrection as a supernatural event because he was saying, well, you know, history can only deal with natural causes, etc. I was thinking to myself, well, if that really is the case, um, and you take that on a very hard line, and you're not going to end up by saying, well, we cannot accept any explanation that even points in the direction of something supernatural. We will have to come up with some, even if it's very implausible in comparison with a supernaturalist kind of explanation, we have to come up with something that uh, points in the direction of something natural, even if it's very implausible. Do you think there's a danger, therefore, with adopting this methodological naturalism position? It could lead us to answers that are less plausible than that which is really true, which is, you know, the supernatural explanation. Exactly, yeah. So imagine that there were some astronauts on the moon and they discovered an inscription or something like that, and they couldn't infer that design was the best explanation because they were restricted to methodological naturalism. Hmm. But obviously, in the case of an inscription, where you have letters and and arranged in a particular way to convey meaning or something like that, uh, the best explanation is design. And so, um, in fact, this is one way where naturalism rather than intelligent design could be a science stopper, right? It holds back scientific progress yes. rather than um, promoting it. Hmm. Um, there are various tests that people insist upon for something to be considered to be scientific. Um, one is that it should be predictive. Do you think intelligent design is at all predictive? Absolutely, I do. Um, intelligent design claims that intelligent agencies are the best explanation for certain phenomena, in particular complex and specified information or specified complexity. Um, and by specified complexity, I mean arrangements which are not only improbable, and by improbable, I mean it exhausts the probabilistic resources at its disposal, but they're also... Sorry, sorry could, you, could you say that again? I didn't yeah. quite catch that. Um, was right. you, you spoke rather quickly. I'm sorry. Point. So specified complexity. So complexity, by complexity, I mean improbable such that it exhausts the available probabilistic resources, right? Mm-hmm. And um, specified conforms to some independently given pattern. So when you put these two criteria together, we have a warranted design inference. Now, so when we look at biological systems, the prediction that intelligent design would make 
if indeed these systems are designed, is that we would find specified complexity. Right. And so when we look at inside the cell and we find these types of phenomena, then that is a fulfilled prediction of design theory. I see. So when we look into new areas, we should expect to find those particular characteristics that you've just listed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, um, what about another one, uh, falsifiability? Now, I know this is something that, I mean, this is Karl Popper's famous uh, criterion that I know it's been challenged many times, but I do think it's still a good rule of thumb. Do you think that intelligent design is falsifiable in principle? Well, first of all, as you probably know, falsifiability as a demarcation criterion has been widely abandoned and rejected by philosophers of science. Um, and there's a number of good reasons for that. I mean, design of paradigms are usually not overturned by a single piece of anomalous data, right? Yeah. It takes a whole cumulative case before our theory eventually has to be overturned and replaced with a new one. Yes. Uh, but um, intelligent design theory, I think, could in principle be falsified if it were shown that, in fact, there wasn't, in fact, specified complexity in biological systems, hmm. or if there were other mechanisms which could produce specified complexity aside from intelligent causes. Mm. Uh, then that would seriously undercut the design thesis. Mm. I see that, but I also see a problem with that in that in the business of sort of the very nature of investigation, scientific investigation or any other investigation, you're always coming across new phenomena waiting to be explained, which means you're always going to be on the edge of explanations, aren't you? There's always going to be something that you might feel justifies this provisional inference to design because well you can't explain it it looks irreducibly complex and then maybe at some point it becomes explained and then you move on to another phenomenon so there will always be something that is in that category therefore can it ever be falsified you know well i, I would be worried if it was the case that the number of phenomena which were being explained by the evolutionary paradigm was increasing uh -huh. and um, in fact intelligent design was having less and less to be explained and that would be a serious problem yeah. um, but it's co the complete reverse of that where actually the more we understand about biology and the more we understand about life the gaps in our knowledge um, in terms of evolutionary explanations are not shrinking they're growing right. very very rapidly right. um, and so I, so that that does not concern me now, that is very interesting. Thank you for that response. Um, another common one here, really, this is just about design itself. Uh, looking at nature, it doesn't seem to be perfect. People call it suboptimal design. Do you think that is a problem from, certainly from a theological perspective for intelligent design? Well, the argument from suboptimal design I find to be quite weak because, I mean, intelligent design doesn't it's not a theory of perfect design, right? We can have imperfect design, which is still designed. I mean, Microsoft Systems is a good example of that, right? There's many flaws with Microsoft programs, and one might say they're even suboptimally designed, but that doesn't negate the design inference. No. Okay. Uh, so that would be the first point. Secondly, uh, even granting this, at best, it's an argument for common ancestry, which doesn't detract from the design thesis anyway. Um, so you could explain some of these suboptimally designed features by developmental constraints and, and evolutionary heritage, etc. Um, thirdly, it's a Darwin of the gaps argument, because as we learn more about the design of these systems uh, and we learn explanations for why the vertebrate retina, for example, is wired the way it is, then the argument has to retreat with each new advance in scientific learning. So it's a Darwin of the gaps argument. Um, so it's, um, it commits the converse fallacy of what the Darwinians are often accusing us intelligent design theorists of. I mean, in terms of, uh, I'll just give an example of where that's happened. Um, for example, take the, um, the vertebrate retina, which is famous for being supposedly wired the wrong way around. But there's actually now understood to be a good design reason for that, um, because retinal cells require very large 
oxygen supply, and so they have a very large uh, blood supply. Now, the blood cells absorb the light, and uh, if blood cells in- invade the retinal cells, then the result of that can be blindness. So that entails that the retinal cells need to receive a blood supply from vessels which don't block the light. But since red blood cells readily absorb light, this demand requires that the retina be wired in the manner in which it is. Um, it's often pointed out that squids and octopuses um, have correctly wired retinas that face outward. But these organisms are exothermic, so they don't require the same blood supply to the retina. And there's kind of those other examples where there's been systems that we thought previously were suboptimally designed, which upon further examination turn out to be designed for a very good reason that way. All right, I see. So different aspects of whatever it is you're looking at might not be, to use a fancy word, compossible with other <laughs> aspects of what you're trying to achieve, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, well, in that case, would that be a problem for theology rather than for intelligent design? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I just showed one example of a system which we thought previously was suboptimally designed and actually turns out to be designed for a good reason. Um, yes, now, but is that the case with, with all of them? You, the, not necessarily. a very good example. They, they can we rule out that there will be future explanations for why these systems are designed the way they are. So again, it's a it's, it's yeah. kind of the Darwin of the gaps argument. Okay. Yeah. Uh, indeed. So coming back to that kind of area again, uh, can we rule out that there won't be materialistic explanations for many of the things that intelligent design so far says cannot or is resisting explanation well the, the question is what's the best explanation and we have a we're not saying there is no explanation we're offering an explanation in the form of intelligence because yeah. the, the only type of cause that can that can produce a, a that can visualize a complex endpoint and bring things together necessary to actualize that complex endpoint the only type of cause or category explanation known to produce that type of thing, to be able to do that, is intelligence. Um, and so when we find irreducibly complex systems and, and systems that require multiple cooperating components in order to produce a, a, an overall effect, um, when we see information-bearing systems, information-rich um, systems um, in the cell, then the best explanation, I would argue, is intelligence. It's not that we don't know, but what we do know about the cause and effect structure of the world, namely this type of cause or counter-explanation is necessary to produce this type of effect. Okay. Um, another one that's often brought against idea theorists is that it promotes an attitude of being too quickly satisfied with not knowing. It's sort of in the interest of the ID theorist not to find a materialistic answer so they can say, well, you know, therefore we can make our inference to design. Say that again. Sorry, I missed you. Can it promote an attitude by the theorist of being too quickly satisfied with not knowing the answer to a question so that they can say, oh, well, we can have this justified inference to design? Does it create um, a desire not to find the answer? No, I, th- I think um, we should continue to look for material explanations to see whether these – but I think the more that we do search for material explanations, the more we realize just how inadequate they are to produce these types of phenomena. So mm. so that's what I would say to that. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but would it – if we were to adopt this, say the scientific community were to adopt this in general, would it kill curiosity? No. Would we not say, well, no, intelligent design is clearly the case, so we, we needn't look for answers anymore? Uh, no, I mean, I think we can actually make very reasonable conservative estimates um, of things like how many mutations are required to produce a certain system and say, okay, even given the most generous of assumptions, the neo-Darwinian explanations just fail completely and utterly. Um, and intelligent design seems to be the most plausible explanation of this thing. Um, and I think intelligent design actually 
um, encourages us to say, look for function for apparently suboptimally designed systems, look for functions of so-called junk DNA, which um, is thought not to be functional and actually upon further investigation turns out to be functional. I mean, neo-Darwinism, one could even argue, uh, discourages us and hinders scientific progress because it says, well, these systems are just suboptimally designed because they're the outworkings of evolution, a stochastic, unguided, blind process. Um, and this DNA is functionless because it's just the accumulation of millions or billions of years of evolution or trial and error. Um, whereas intelligent design says, wait a minute, if these systems are designed, then we should expect reasons for why they're designed the way they are. And we should expect this DNA to be largely substantially functional. And upon further investigation, that turns out to be the case. Okay, do you think intelligent design should be taught in schools? I mean, within the science curriculum? Uh, no, I don't think so at this point, at least, because I don't think intelligent design hasn't yet won the scientific consensus. And so I don't think that it should be rushed into the, the public school science classes um, until it's convinced the majority of the scientific community of its correctness. So you think that uh, neo Darwinian evolution should continue to be taught in schools? Absolutely, I do. And I think that it should be taught in a teach the controversy model. So I think that we should explore not just the strengths of the currently taught paradigm, but also weaknesses thereof that are talked about, spoken of in the mainstream scientific literature. Aha. Uh-huh. So not specifically talking about intelligent design, but just the weaknesses of the current theory. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, intelligent design itself, do you think it should be taught elsewhere, In you know, perhaps in RE classes, something like that? Does it belong in RE? Well, I mean, the way that I would teach religious education is probably different from the way that uh, most people do. But the way, I, <laughs> yes. the way I would teach religious education would be to equip students with the tools necessary to critically evaluate the religious claims of different worldviews, such as Christianity, Islam, etc., and weigh up the evidence and discuss it in a rational and critical way. And I think that when one does that, I think the evidence strongly supports the truth of the Christian worldview. Now, I think that arguments for classical theism could be discussed in that context, and that could include the arguments from biological design, such as we've been discussing here. Yes, okay. Um, What's your attitude towards theistic evolution, um, I know it's got very bad press in particularly evangelical circles. Um, I think it's quite ably defended by Keith Ward. I've read something by him about that. Um, I'm not personally persuaded by it. I, I think it has difficulties. But what's your attitude towards it? Um, I think it has scientific, philosophical, and theological problems. Um, scientifically, because the evidence just doesn't support Darwinism. So why right. do we need? To, why, why do Christians need to rush to accept a paradigm right. and then right. to wed it to their theology when actually, at, at just the time when the evidence is becoming clearer and clearer that it just doesn't. The, the scientific evidence just does not fit the paradigm. Why do we need to embrace it? We just don't need to. So it's unnecessary. Mm. Also, it's philosophically problematic because um, not even God can direct a fundamentally undirected process, right? It's just straightforward logic. So that's not even a theological problem, but just a logical one. And if we're defining Darwinism as an unguided, stochastic, blind process, mindless process, mm. then in what sense is it theistic? Right. Um, to the extent that evolution is theistic, it's not Darwinian. To the extent that it's Darwinian, it's not theistic. So as soon as you start saying that it's guided or directed towards a particular outcome, mm. then you're no longer in the field of Darwinism. You're now into intelligent design. 
territory. Right. And uh, I would be very happy with that. Oh, I see. Um, right. So you, you would be happy with something like that sort of front-loaded kind of information at the beginning that somehow found its way into the evolutionary process and gave rise to what we might call, therefore, design. You'd be happy with that? In principle, I don't think that's the way it happened because I don't think there's, oh. I don't think there's good enough evidence for common ancestry. But in principle, I'd, I'd be open to that if someone could give me some good arguments for it. So you don't like the idea particularly of front-loading for a, a number of reasons. So obviously, side-loading is the thing that uh, presumably you would go for, which is where God intervenes from time time to time to bring about new life forms, something like that? Is that what you would go for? Yeah, I think that's the best um, understanding. I think saltationism or, or de novo creation are, are the best ways to go. Okay. Um, now, as you know, there is an objection to that in terms of elegance. A lot of people say that that is not the kind of thing that you would expect God to do. It's not worthy of God. It's an inelegant thing to do. You're expecting to set the whole thing going and it's like a perfect created machine that produces rather than this thing that he has to tinker with every now and again. How do you react to that kind of objection? I am not in the business of telling God to do things the way I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I often wonder whether that's more the, the God of the philosopher, the Greek philosopher, than it is uh, the Hebrew. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, subjective in the, in the eye of the beholder. I mean, what's elegant to one person isn't necessarily to another. So it's just, it's not a very good argument. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so coming back to wed this to apologetics now, what do you think is the relationship between ID and apologetics? I mean, I have a bit of a problem here at the web website and that I've interviewed people about, as I said, about uh, ID before, and I'm wondering, you know, which category to put it in. And sometimes I think to myself, I shouldn't really put it in the apologetics category, because although it's related, it's it's not specific to that. You see the problem I'm having here. So what, what's your attitude towards it? How do these things relate? I think intelligent design contributes to the case for the truth of theism, that God exists. And I think that the case for the existence of God, in turn, contributes to the overall case for the truth of Christianity. Yes, so they sort of can go hand in hand, but they're obviously not in the same category exactly. Um, why do you think there's been this resistance to intelligent design? Um, obviously not just in the culture, but even within the Christian community. This is one of the things that William Dembski has complained about. Um, he'd be very sad about it, actually. I remember I read an interview that he had about this where he's expressing he was very disappointed at the reaction by Christians to intelligent design. How do you account for that? How do I account for that? Well, um, yeah. I'm likewise sad about that. I mean, we have opposition, not just from the theist evolutionists, but also from the young earth creationist crowd who basically assert that we don't go far enough in terms of identifying the designer as the god of the Bible. Uh, and my response to that is that they've simply misapprehended what intelligent design is about. I mean, I've made no secret of the fact that I think that the designer is the god of the Bible, but I'm not drawing that out of the inference of design as a scientific project, right? It's completely independent grounds. Mm -hmm. So um, I think they kind of misapprehend what intelligent design is about, and I think that we need better public relations. I think that's the solution. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak with us about this. I did want to sort of shoot loads and loads of questions at you about this because it's not something we looked into philosophically about this. So it's very interesting to go over this with you. Thank you very much indeed for doing that. Um, I would like to direct interested people to your website. Uh, could you tell us again what that is? It's apologetics-academy.org. Okay, and people can sign up there to be involved with your webinars, and they can also somehow or other tell you about things that they personally wish answered to do with doubts and that sort of thing. Is that right? That's right. And there are forms on the website in order to do that. That's right. Okay. And you write for the main blog of the Discovery Institute, but I'm not quite sure that I've got the right URL for that. Could you just let us know what that is? 
Uh, the website of Discovery Institute is discovery.org, um, and for the Center for Science and Culture, it's forward slash CSC. And the blog, the, the main blog of Discovery Institute is Evolution News, uh, which is evolutionnews.org. Ah, right. So Evolution News. Okay, I think you had it down as something else, so I wasn't quite sure whether it's that one that you wrote for or something else. Uh, it used to be called Evolution News and Views, but they recently renamed it Evolution News and Science, I think. Um, uh, and okay. yeah. I've written about 150 articles there, but I haven't written I haven't written in a couple of years. So. 150? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well done. Okay, well, thank you ever so much, Jonathan, for, for joining us. I've enjoyed speaking to you, and it's been uh, very interesting indeed to be able to have this chat and uh, to pick your brains about it. Thanks very much. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. And if you're interested to find out more about the biological and information theoretical arguments in favour of intelligent design, then I do recommend both of those interviews that I mentioned earlier. One with Dr. Michael Behe on the ideas in his books Darwin's Black Box and The Edge of Evolution, and a more recent interview with Dr. Robert Marks on the book he co-authored with William Dembski and Winston Ewart called An Introduction to Evolutionary Informatics, both of which you'll currently find under the Apologetics sub-tab of the Topics tab at the website, though I may shift those to a different sub-tab at some point because of the reasons I mentioned in the interview today, but at the moment that's where you'll find them, so just navigate to the menu where you will see topics a drop down menu should then appear and you can find them by clicking on apologetics and i'll also recommend an episode of tmr in which i featured a lecture by the philosopher of science dr del ratch called intelligent design what is science permitted to think which was courtesy of mclaurincsf.org, but that now seems to have changed its name to anselmhouse.org. Anyway, courtesy of them. These links keep changing. I can't keep up with it. Anyway, I do recommend that also as a slightly different and perhaps broader take on this whole area of intelligent design. A very interesting lecture indeed, I think. And following last fortnight's programme with Joe Jordan, where I mentioned that I was going to upgrade the... TMR website. I'm pleased to say that that has now taken place. TMR now has an SSL certificate. Well, actually, it has a TLS certificate, a a transport layer security. I don't know what the difference between the two is. No doubt some of you do out there. Uh, But basically, it means that the Mind Renewed website is now more secure because the site is encrypted and uh, therefore it has the HTTPS prefix rather than just the usual HTTP. And of particular concern to me, that should mean that Google now has no reason to derank TMR in Google searches or indeed when people use other search engines that are powered by Google. So now you'll find it at https colon forward slash forward slash themindrenewed.com with a green padlock on the address bar, which I think does look rather nice. And I've also purchased website security, which means that the site should remain free of malware, etc. Not that I've had any problems along those lines, but I think it's as well to remain on the safe side with such things. I do believe so. So uh, in the bottom right hand corner of your browser now when you visit TMR you should see a little red shield from McAfee which when you click on it uh, certifies that the site is secure. Now the only downsides are two that I know of. One is that I've had to replace a few of the plugins that controlled the main menu, the slideshow and the news display, uh, which means that the website doesn't actually look quite as tidy as I think it did before. Um, Unfortunately those plugins 
I tried as hard as I could, but they refused to render some of their components via HTTPS. They insisted on doing that through HTTP, and that meant the pages on which they were active appeared to be less secure. So therefore, I had to change those plugins. And as I say, it doesn't look quite as neat as it did before, which is a bit of a disappointment, but um, it's still all very functional. The other downside, which I think is not at all important actually, is that certain show notes pages are rated as not fully secure. In the address bar, you get that little triangle instead of the green padlock. Now, the only difference is that on those particular pages, I have Amazon links with a little bit of extra code actually provided by Amazon to identify TMR as the referrer. So in reality, as far as I understand it anyway, those links are as secure as Amazon itself is secure. But I'm just saying that if you go to some of those pages, you will see the triangle rather than the padlock. So all in all, I think it's gone well. As I say, not quite as neat as I would have liked, but more secure and pleasing to the Google monster um, with whom I certainly wish not to be associated, but with whom I have no choice but to deal, unfortunately. So that's it for today. Um, I'm not at the moment sure if there will be a podcast in the next fortnight, um, as that's going to be getting extremely close to Christmas Day. There may be something I just haven't decided upon that yet, but there will be Uh, There should be, anyway, that uh, Nephilim Boys and One Girl Revolutions episode on New Year's Day, or rather as the clock strikes 12 on New Year's Eve, whichever way you want to look at it. So that will be just a week later than the normal show coming out a fortnight from today. So, as I say, that's it for today. If I don't get to speak to you before Christmas Day, let me wish you all, wherever you may be in this world, a very enjoyable Christmas celebration and... Don't forget to hang up a stocking and leave a little drop of brandy or perhaps port next to the fireplace or letterbox for Father Christmas. You have been reminded. And I, for one, am looking forward to Father Christmas enjoying that glass of port or brandy in this house on Christmas Eve. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com. In fact, https colon forward slash forward slash themindrenewed.com. And I very much look forward to speaking to you in the near future.